reflect back on, on growing up here in central Pennsylvania, one of the, the big things that, that I as a kid used to do, um, I was an only child, so other than playing with like my make-believe friends and G.I. Joes when I was a little kid and stuff like that, uh, we would go to the, to the swimming pool. And uh, we lived out in, in Colonial Park near the Colonial Park Mall, so the swimming pool that we went to was a place called Devon Manor Swim Club. Some of you guys may be familiar with it. It's uh, just a little bit north of uh, the Colonial Park Mall. And uh, Devon Manor was, a, was an amazing place. Uh, it was a, a short bike ride from our house on Irene Drive, which was right there along uh, Route 81. Uh, all my friends went there. There was a, a great snack bar. Uh, you know, even though I probably shouldn't have thought about that as a, as a young guy, there were lots of cute girls there. That was some incentive to go to the swimming pool. But the greatest thing of all, next to the cute girls, uh, was the high dive. And uh, many of you know what I'm talking about. You know, you've got this, this very long, springy board that has been, been painted in this kind of like blue-green color that's got uh, sand impregnated in the paint so that you don't slip and fall to your death. Uh, it's suspended 10 feet above the water by this galvanized steel pipe superstructure. And as a kid, everybody wanted to be able to go off the high dive. That was like a big deal. And for eight-year-old Mikey Leonzo, that was like my dream when I first arrived at Devon Manor Swim Club. And I can remember uh, for the first couple weeks, I, you know, I would watch these other kids uh, scamper up that, that vertical ladder and uh, there were rules that you had to follow. So, you know, there was only one kid allowed on the ladder at any time, one kid allowed at the board at any time. So somebody would stand at the bottom of the ladder, someone would be up on the very top step of the ladder, someone would actually be on the board, the person would go off, everyone would shift, and it was nice and mechanized and nice and controlled and things like that. And I can remember, you know, I'd watch these kids in, in amazement, you know, they just went right up the ladder. They weren't scared at all. They would stand up there on that board and they would look out into the horizon. And then with like a shout of joy, they would go screaming off the board and falling into that cool, clear water. And oh, how I wanted that to be me. But I was afraid. And I would, you know, maybe some of you are like me, you know, I, I would wander over to, to the deep end and I would survey every square inch of that concrete and I would look at that water and I would want to get in that line. But I was just too afraid. But finally, after about four or five weeks, I, I, I finally worked up the, the gumption, if that's a, a word, to, to stand in line. And there I was, maybe about five or six kids uh, in front of me, and one by one, th those kids began that whole cycle to the front of the ladder, up the ladder, off the ladder, onto the board, running off the board. And as I'm getting closer and closer to that ladder, my heart is beating faster and faster. And finally, I, I get before the ladder and, and I, I climb up and I'm standing at the top tier of the ladder and there's one kid on the board and I'm like, oh, can I do this? I can do this. Can I do this? I can do this. And the kid goes and jumps off. And I go and I stand on the board and, and I, I'm, I'm just looking out and I'm paralyzed. And I'm between, you know, that proverbial rock and a hard place. There's no way I'm going back because the kids are just going to ridicule you for, you are going to be labeled a wimp for the balance of elementary school. But if I go forward, I, it's, yeah, you're done, man. It's, I'm going to drown. I'm going to die. It's, it's horrible. But I was on a mission. Today was the day. Today was eight-year-old Mikey Leonzo going to make it off of that board. And I did that day, and I didn't tell the last service. Uh, last night, I forgot to tell them I actually did it. At the end of the service, people were coming up. Well, did you go off or didn't you? Like, I'm a 54-year-old man. I can jump off a 10-foot board now. But uh, anyhow, uh, the fear that I experienced was uh, very real. And uh, if you would have captured the image of me there before I went off, it'd be something like this Norman Rockwell painting there, right? I mean, that, that was me. I was just absolutely terrified 
of jumping off of that thing. And, uh, you know, I would imagine you laugh because because many of you have been there. And, and maybe it wasn't a high dive. Maybe there was something else in your life. Maybe, maybe it was the first time that, that you got behind the wheel of that car. And, and you, you were terrified. You had anxiety, but, but you, you knew that you had to kind of press through it. Or, or maybe it was, uh, you know, going to Hershey Park and, and stepping into the the, the seat of, of the roller coaster, or, or when I was a, a kid going into that uh, round thing that you stood there against the wall and you spun around and the floor dropped out from underneath you. I mean, that stuff was absolutely terrifying. Or, or perhaps, uh, you know, you, you put on a parachute one day and you went up in an airplane and the door is open and you are clinging to the side of the airplane because you, you, you know you can't go back down in the plane because everyone would ridicule you, but you don't want to jump out of it. Or maybe it's standing in front of a public speaking class in high school or college or walking onto that field of play the very first time that you're actually on the starting team. I, I never knew that. I played a lot of sports. I never was on the starting team. I was always, uh, I did a great job carrying the oranges, man. If they gave out high school letters for being uh, the water carrier and the orange guy, that would have been me. Uh, or maybe it was just, uh, you know, you were, you were into musicals or theater or, or choir and it was standing in front of all of those people for the very first time. Uh, you know, where, where, where going back is just simply not possible, but, but moving forward is equally terrible. And uh, if you have ever been there, you're going to relate to what we read today. Because what we're going to discover today is that uh, Jacob, this fellow who we have been studying over the last couple couple weeks, uh, he's between a rock and a hard place. Uh, he has just uh, left his father Laban, father-in-law Laban's home, and uh, his father-in-law uh, has basically told him, you know what, don't you dare ever come back. And uh, so he's got to move forward. Yet yeah, moving forward means that he's going to ultimately have to encounter his brother Esau. Uh, someone who he's exploited, someone who actually wants to kill him. And uh, so it's a, a pretty scary place to be. And, and what we're going to see today as we work through the, the scriptures is that, that God is in the midst of our fear. He's at work in the midst of our fear. And uh, we're going to explore that a little bit. So if you have a Bible with you, you're going to open up to Genesis chapter 32, the, the very first book of the Bible. We're going to look at uh, verses 1 to uh, 21, Genesis chapter 32, 1 to 21. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles on the tables uh, around the room. And uh, if you're able to stand, if you would do so, please, in honor of God's word. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Maniam. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants, I have sent them to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him, and the flocks and the herds and the camels, into two camps, thinking, If Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then that, the, the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and of all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with, or for with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, 
and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. And he instructed the first, When Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, To whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They are present sent to my lord Esau. Moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him. And you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the presence that goes ahead of me. And afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, last week, uh, Pastor Ben did a masterful job of explaining to you the, the process that, that Jacob went through to leave his father-in-law Laban and still be able to keep all of his family. And uh, it was very difficult. Uh, Jacob's interactions with, with Laban were extremely uh, contentious. And at the very end, as they're saying their parting goodbyes, there's a little exchange that happens uh, that I want to share with you here. It, it ends in uh, verse 31, starting in ver- or chapter 31, verse 51. And it says this, Then Laban said to Jacob, this is just as they're getting ready to depart from one another, See this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me? This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. And they ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Now what we have here basically is the equivalent of of, uh, two brothers who are are living in the same bedroom who've gotten into a fight with one another. And and one of the brothers whips out a a roll of masking tape and divides the room in half and and runs the tape from the ceiling down the wall, across the floor, up the other uh, wall and to the top of the ceiling. And they basically agree that we're not going to cross this line. And if you cross the line, you know, Timmy, I'm going to beat the crud out of you. And, and Bobby, if you cross this line, I'm going to beat the crud out of you. So that's what's going on here. These guys have, have decided, I'm going to stay in my place, you stay in your place, and we'll be done. And so basically what Laban has done is he has drawn a line in the sand. And Isaac, or Jacob cannot return back over that. So he can only move forward. And the moving forward that he is supposed to do is he's supposed to return to his mother, Rebekah, and to his father, Isaac, in a land, the promised land, about 500 miles to the south. But there is a problem. There's a huge problem. And the huge problem is Jacob's twin brother, Esau, the brother who he's pretty much spent the entirety of his childhood and into his adult years uh, exploiting. And the reason that that Jacob found himself 500 miles away from his hometown is because his brother Esau had planned to kill him. And now he's been gone for for 20 years, and so uh, God has called him to, to return home. But the problem is he doesn't know whether Esau... Uh, is uh, forgotten what's happened or forgiven him or whether Esau is, is waiting to take him out. And his mother, Rebecca, had promised him that, that when Esau had calmed down and when he didn't want to kill him anymore, that she would send a message to Jacob up uh, 
at Laban's house, basically, to tell him that, hey, you know, it's safe to come home. But this message has never arrived. And just like me on the high dive, Jacob is stuck between a rock and a hard place. And just like me, being in that place fills him with fear. And some of us are in that place right now. Some of us are, are, are stuck. Uh, some things have happened to us in the past, uh, varied, whatever they might be, and, and we know that there's no going back. We just can't simply change the past, and, and we can't go back. But, but moving forward is, is a terrifying place to be. There's a, a great unknown, or, or the thing that you need to do, the thing that you need to confront is, is something that you don't want to confront. It's a terrible place to be, and in that tension, there is great fear. And so what we're going to see is this passage is going to tell us about how God works in the midst of this fear and some of the stupid things that we actually do when we're in the midst of fear. So look with me at the first two verses of Genesis 32. It says, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And the first thing that this tells us is that, that in the midst of our fear, God wants to be seen. God desires to, to encourage us that God is actually with us and that he, he will do radical things to remind us that he's actually there. And with the appearance of these angels, God's invisible world shows up in Jacob's visible world. We don't know how many angels that are there. We don't know in what form they appeared, but we do know that Jacob exclaimed, this is God's camp. In other words, God is here. God is with me. He's left one danger. He's facing another danger. And God wanted to make sure that in spite of his fear, he knew that God was with him. And we see God's promise to be with us in the midst of our fear in all different places of Scripture. But perhaps the most well-known place is in Psalm 23. And you guys, many of you have committed these words uh, to your, your mind, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Yea, rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. That, that God is with us, even in the midst of evil, that, that he is there to encourage us and to press us forward. But what I have learned, at least from my experience, is although God is with me, a lot of times he doesn't take away the fear. His presence is there but it's still fearful. And he's there to remind us that he's in control, that he has a purpose for our lives, that we matter. And uh, he wants us to, to understand that, that he, he will guide and direct us. And, and over these last uh, 18, 19 years of ministry here at Living Water, uh, there have been times where I have known great fear. I, I have gotten myself into, into situations, uh, especially relational situations, uh, with husbands and wives whose marriages are, are going crazy and people are doing crazy things. And uh, quite frankly, they've gotten to be a dangerous place. I can remember one time years and years ago, before, I think before we were even here uh, in this building, that uh, I got called to the, the home of a, a husband and wife, uh, and, and they were just going at it. And I, I, I come through the door, and, you know, they're just shouting and anger and, and all this kind of stuff. This husband has done some really bad things. The wife is, is just letting him have it. I'm trying to get things spooled down. And uh, the anger is just enormous. And uh, the wife just wants the guy out of the house. And I'm like, you know, come on, brother. Dude, just for tonight, just, just pack a bag, go to a hotel. Let's just let all of this stuff simmer down. And the guy goes, all right, fine, I will. And he goes storming up the stairs. And uh, I, I knew this guy was, a, was an avid sportsman. And I thought to myself, that was the stupidest thing in the world that I just did. Because that dude is going to go upstairs, and he's not going to get a bag. He's going to get a gun. And I'm dying here. The wife is dying here. And this guy is probably going to take his own life here. And, and I sat down on that couch for about three or four minutes, thinking, man, O'Day, it is all over. Fortunately, the guy came down. He came down with a bag. He left, and 
And ultimately, years later, they, they worked things out. But you know, uh, while that was a scary thing, I think perhaps the most scary things that I've ever uh, experienced here at Living Water is just wondering whether I've actually missed what God had for us, what God was, was calling us to, to do. And in, in the early years of Living Water, and I, I may have shared this story before, I'm not sure if I did or not, but I knew that I knew that I knew that God had called us to, to be a church that, that reflect our community, that, that we were to, to have people from every different ethnicity and walk of life and economic status and educational background and, and physical ability, that, that when you came to Living Water, you should be seeing basically uh, giant you know I mean that's what it should be like it should be like uh, our, our neighborhood and, and those first couple years uh, that just was not happening and I I was scared and I was like God what did I miss how did I miss this there was one particular uh, morning uh, we're at the Rutherford Elementary School and, and the, the band is playing and there's about two songs left and and I'm just like I'm just like, God, I, I've just, I've blown this. Somehow I've missed this. I, I don't know whether I didn't hear your voice right or whatever. And, and, and just this, this terror came over my, my, my body thinking to myself, my goodness, what have I done to my family? What have I, I done to my mom and dad and those other people who were in a small group with me? And, you know, I, I told them this is what's going to happen and it's just not happening. And, and I went out into the to the hallway because I just I couldn't stand I didn't want to sing these these worship songs and, and I walked down the the long corridor at Rutherford Elementary School which tees off into two other uh, corridors and at the end of these two corridors there were kind of like pods these big open hallway areas with classrooms all around them and then one of those pods was where we had our, our nursery and uh, our nursery can, consisted of a, a rolling folding partition and a, a bunch of those like uh, three foot by three foot uh, puzzle like things that are spongy that you can put together so that when the kid falls he doesn't crack his head on on the concrete and some of you from the old days of Rutherford your kids grew up on those things and uh, I remember looking into that nursery and there were six little kids there and there was one little white kid and five little brown kids and uh, they, they were were kids who had either been adopted or uh, their, their, their mom was, was, was white and she's married to a, a black fella or, or whatever. And I can remember God saying to me, you know what, Mike, in spite of your fear, in spite of your doubt, I'm doing this, not just the way that you thought it was going to happen. And that was a, was a huge encouragement for me. And that's what God does in the midst of our fear, in the midst of our doubt. He shows up. And he wants to, to let us know that, that, that he is there. and Because uh, God, he wants to be seen. He wants us to know who he is and what he's doing. So with this little bit of encouragement of these angels showing up, Jacob can press forward. He can start heading towards Esau. So this is what happens in verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Eden, instructing them, you shall say to my Lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male servants and female servants. I have sent to, I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he's coming to meet you. And there are 400 men with him. And then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. So wisely what has happened is Jacob has sent a delegation ahead to meet with his brother because he wants to get a little bit of a lay on the land. He wants to find out, hey, is my brother still out to, you know, is he still gunning for me? Does he want to take me down? Or has he kind of cooled off over these last 20 years? And notice the message that Esau, or that Jacob sends to Esau. He, he calls Esau my Lord, not just once, but twice. Even though Jacob tricked Esau into selling his birthright, even though God had said the older should serve the younger, even though Jacob stole Esau's blessing, Jacob ultimately decides that he needs to treat Esau 
as his superior. And in an attempt to restore that relationship, he humbles himself because he wants to make it right. And it's a noble effort on the part of Jacob. But guys and ladies, it does not work out the way that he thinks that it's going to work out. Because this delegation that meets Esau comes back and says, hey, I got to tell you, yeah, Esau's actually coming to us. He must have heard we're on our way. He's coming to us. And he's not just coming to us by himself, uh, you know, riding on a donkey. He's bringing 400 men with him. That's a, that's a conquering army is what's coming with him. And this news stokes the fear of Jacob. All of a sudden, you know, the, the, the angels are in the past, and, and God's presence is, is in the past. All of these things that, that God has done for Jacob, he forgets. And that brings us to the second thing I think that we glean from this passage, that in our fear, we typically only see defeat. So how does Jacob respond to this news? And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. You see, Jacob has moved from being afraid to greatly afraid and distressed. And, and he splits his flock in two. Why does he do that? Because he wants to cut his losses. He is confident that he is going to be defeated. He is confident that Esau has malcontent for him. In the midst of his fear, he forgets everything that God has done. He forgets that, 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 that God has uh, taken him from nothing in the desert to something. That God provided for him, that God gave him a wife. God actually gave him two wives. It's not what he was expecting. He gave him servants and camels. He was there when he left Laban. God was there in the midst of all of this thing. But fear has blinded him, and the only thing that he can see is defeat. And the same is true for us. When we live in fear, more times than not, we forget what God has done in the past. Everything in front of us is negative, is terrifying. And when we begin to make decisions out of fear, folks, we make the worst decisions of all. We fear that we're going to lose an important relationship. So we do all kinds of crazy, destructive things to try to save that relationship. We fear that, that we're not going to have a, enough money to do this, that, or the other thing. So, so we decide that we're going to have a, a scarcity mentality. And, and any level of generosity that we have completely goes out the window. We fear that if we come clean with our sins, that, that we're going to be rejected and left behind by the, the, the people who care for us. And, and so what happens is, is we cling on to those sins and, and, and we're stuck in their, their controlling power. Or we fear this, that, or the other thing, and we do everything in our power to, to exercise control over the situation. And many times that exercise of control ultimately backfires on us. You see, fear keeps us from taking risks, from asking forgiveness, from stepping out in faith, because all we see is defeat. But what's interesting about all of this stuff is this fear that Jacob has hasn't completely incapacitated him. Because he does something actually unexpected here. Look at the next few verses. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all of the, these, the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed the Jordan, and now I become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children, 
But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. See, one of the happens, thing that happens in the midst of our fear, at some point, we get driven to prayer. At some point, we're trying to control things, it's not working out, and at some point, we get driven to fear, or driven to prayer. And uh, you may have heard the saying, uh, when all else fails, pray. Uh, I think Jacob probably was the author of that quote, because that's what he does. Everything else has failed has failed, and now he's been, been overcome with the idea that, hey, I, I better pray. And, you know, when you look at the prayer, it's actually a pretty deep prayer. It's not just like, you know, oh, God, I'm scared, help me. I mean, what does he do? He, he first, he, he recognizes God for who he is. He recognizes that, that God has been with his grandfather and God has been with his dad. He acknowledges that, that God has a, a call on his life and that God's promise for him is, is good. He acknowledges his own sin and his unworthiness. He recounts God's provision for his life. And he acknowledges his fear and he asks God to deliver him from the fear. And you know, this is how many of us operate. Even though God has made promises in our lives, even though he has delivered us time and time again, when things don't go the way that we want in the present, when danger rears its ugly head, when disappointment invades our lives, the first thing that we do, and I'm as guilty as anybody of this, is we act. That's what we do. We go with our gut. We go with our intuition. We, we go with, the, with, with what society would, would tell us to do. That's what we do. We act. And then when, once we act and things don't go the way that we want, we move to prayer. That's what Jacob does. He tries to manage things with his own strength. Then he goes to God. And while his prayer is great, there's one thing that he's actually lacking in the prayer. And you know what it is? God, what do you want me to do? He says, God, save me, but he never asks God, God, show me what I'm supposed to do, and I'm going to wait until you show me. He, he doesn't do that. And this is extremely important that we see this, because what happens next, as soon as Jacob gets off his knees, he goes right back to trying to figure out how to do it himself. Look at the next couple verses, 13 to 21. And so he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, and he takes all of, of these animals, basically. And it says, These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, Pass on ahead of me, and put space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. And then he goes and he tells all of his other servants to basically do the same thing. And then he explains in verse 20, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. And what we see from those verses is this. That in our fear, we attempt to save ourselves. That's what happens. Despite asking God to save him from Esau, Jacob decides, i got to do it myself. And so he sets aside 200 female goats and 20 male goats. 200 female sheep, 20 male sheep, 30 milking camels, their calves, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys, and he sends 
them ahead of him in hopes that he can buy Esau's forgiveness. That's his game plan. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. This is absolutely insane. Jacob has gone to God and asked God to save him. And rather than waiting for God to do that, he takes all the stuff that God has blessed him with and he tries to bribe his brother. All of God's blessings, he, he gathers together and he attempts to use those to save himself. Now I want you to notice something that is so incredibly easy to miss. It's in the last sentence of verse 20. He says this, For I thought that I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterwards I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. Here we see Jacob being completely honest with himself. He says to himself, I'm going to give him all of this stuff, and perhaps he will accept me. And when you use the word perhaps, there's a flip side to perhaps. Perhaps he won't accept me. Perhaps he will kill me. You see, Jacob has absolutely no confidence in his ability to save himself. It's all simply a roll of the dice. Maybe he'll be accepted. Maybe he'll be killed. And do you want to know something? Many of us do that exact same thing with God. You see, every one of us, whether we're willing to, to admit it or not, we're, we're on a journey to meet God. With every passing minute, we get closer to him. It's unstoppable, unstoppable. There, there are some who are sitting in this room right now that by the end of this year, you will have met God. It happens every single year at Living Water. People who I love, people who I care about, people who are young, people who are old, people who are healthy, people who are unhealthy, they die. You think they're going to be here forever, and they die. Every single one of us, we are on a journey to meet God. And, and no matter how hard we try, no matter how well we eat, how much we exercise, how we take care of ourselves, one day we're going to meet God. And the big question of life is this. Will he accept me? That's the question. Will he accept me? And many of us are like Jacob, and we're trying to figure out what we have to do to be accepted by God. And we try all kinds of things. We decide, you know, we, we, we better be a good person. We, we, we need to go to church. We need to say our prayers. We need to give away our money. We need to get baptized. We need to take the Lord's Supper. We need to work hard to make sure that our theology is spot on, because if it's not, God might not accept me. We try to protect the environment. We work to be model citizens. We're kind to our neighbors. We volunteer. We adopt kids or foster them. We fight for justice. You name it, we do whatever we think we've got to do to please God. And for many of us, in spite of all of our hard work, we're still stuck with that thought. Perhaps he'll accept me. But maybe he won't. If we're really honest, that's where we're at. And this has been a conundrum that has plagued people through the ages. What can I do to make sure that God will accept me? 
And God answers that question in Romans chapter 3. This is what he says. None is righteous, not even one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That, brothers and sisters, is you and me. Even on our best day, we are unable to please God. And to make sure that we really understand this, in just a few verses later, in verse 20, the Apostle Paul summarizes things this way. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know, all those rules that we try to follow, uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments, you know, honor your father and mother, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery, don't covet, all of those things. Uh, you know, don't make a graven image of God. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. All of those things are the 300 or 603 additional commands that are in the balance of the Old Testament or, or even the things that, that we tell that other people should do that we don't do. I mean, to me, I think that's a, you know, the biggest commands that we violate is when, when, when I look at Tom and I say, I can't believe Tom did that. And then I do the exact same thing. I mean, all of those things we do in attempts to make ourselves right with God, we look at them and say, perhaps he will accept me. But rather than being confident in whether he will accept us or not, we can be confident in this. None of that stuff earns God's acceptance. None of it. I can honor my father and mother all day long. I can spend my life not lying, not cheating, not stealing, not lusting. And go through life saying, man, I'm fulfilling all of God's rules and commands. I'm doing it. And by saying that, I'm living pridefully. Even in the right things I do, I do them for the wrong motives. I try to be a good pastor. I try to love you guys and stuff like that. But I'm not always doing it for you guys. I'm doing it so you'll like me. All that good stuff that, that I do, it's sin. There's not a single thing that any of us can do that, that can assure that God is going to that is God's going to love us period we don't have to ask the question perhaps he will he accept me he's not going to accept us there's no question based on on what Romans 3 says right there we are totally doomed when we look at trying to do this in and of our own strength and then verse 21 comes along and there is that contraction but and but can be ugly when someone says out on a date you're a really nice guy but you know you're going to crash and burn story of my life Kathy just never learned the word but that's the only reason why she's with me basically Or but can be a beautiful word. And here it is beautiful. But now the righteousness of God, in other words, the right standing with God has been manifest apart from the law. There's a way to be made right with God that doesn't involve following the rules. That's what that says. 
although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God that comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. In other words, there's not a distinction between good people and bad people because it says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. The way that we are made right with God is not through the fact that we followed the rules, but it's made through the fact that Jesus followed the rules. He did what we could not do. And so we go through life striving to do all the right things, trying to earn our way to God, it's impossible to do. It's not that we shouldn't do those things. We need to do those things, but we don't do those things. We don't live righteous, righteous lives in order to earn God's love. We learn righteous lives. Why? Because we've received God's love. That's what drives us. That's the motivation. And he says this, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forth as a propitiation by his blood, that God put him forth as a sacrifice for us to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance and his divine patience, he passed over our former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and he might be the one who justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. When we go through life thinking that we can earn our way to God, we can be confident that we can't. And when we finally figure out that, God, there is nothing that I can do to make me right before you, then our eyes are open to be able to see Jesus for who he really is, the one who has accomplished that which we cannot accomplish. And it drives us to repentance of our sins, and it drives us to put our faith in Jesus, the one and only who can ultimately save us. And that brings us to this. Because what this is about is remembering what Jesus did. It's about remembering that Jesus lived a, a holy and righteous life, that he never sinned, not one single slip-up, that he followed God's rules completely, and yet he was rejected. The people looked at him and said, I, I, I don't want what you're offering. And he's rejected and he is nailed on a cross and on the cross of Calvary, God's wrath for all of our sin is thrust upon Jesus. Because someone has to pay the price for our sin. It's either us or somebody else. And, and, and God pours out his wrath upon Jesus and Jesus takes every ounce of God's wrath to the point that he dies on a cross. And three days later, after being laid down in the tomb, he, he raises again to, to demonstrate that he has conquered sin and death once and for all. And we take these elements today to remember that he's done that. And to remember that there is no way that we can earn ourselves to heaven. Nothing. No way. Jesus and Jesus alone is that way. And so as you hold this unleavened bread that represents Jesus' broken body and you hold this little cup of, of juice that represents Jesus' blood, may it be a reminder to us that while we are called to live holy and righteous lives, those holy and righteous lives will never earn us into heaven. What earns us into heaven is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. That's what does it. If you're here today and you've confessed your sins, you've received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, take these elements, please. 
doesn't matter whether you're a member here, a regular attender, whether you're a guest here for the very first time, take these elements. But if you're here today and you've not yet come to the conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the way and the truth and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him, if you're not at that place, first of all, I am so glad you're here. Please bring your friends. I would love this room to be filled with people who have yet to come to that conclusion. But if you're here and you've yet to come to that conclusion, I pray that you would allow these elements to pass you by. They, they do you absolutely no good. There's no shame in letting them pass you by. You're just simply acknowledging this is where I'm at right now, and I would rather you be honest with me than to try to blow sunshine into my life any day of the week. Let them go by. So let me pray, we'll distribute the elements, hold on to them, we'll take them all together, we'll rise and take them all together. Lord God, thank you for uh, this time that we could come together, we can explore your word, and uh, to, to praise your name. And, and Father, I thank you for uh, this unleavened bread that represents your, your broken body, uh, Lord, this fruit of the vine that uh, represents uh, your shed blood. Lord, I pray that as I hold these elements and as my friends in this room hold these elements, that, that we will remember the great price that had to be paid because of our sin. God, would you uh, not only bring conviction to our hearts, but would you bring gladness to our hearts for the fact that, that the price has been paid, the debt has been cleared, eternity has been bought, and Lord, let us also rejoice in the fact that your word tells us that one day your son will come back and he will gather his people to himself. Lord, I pray also for those who are here who have yet to, to come to faith in you, Heavenly Father. I pray that they would know that they are amongst friends, amongst people who care for them. Uh, Lord, that uh, we, we all uh, stand in need, Heavenly Father, at the foot of the cross, equally at the foot of the cross, desperate for you. Lord, I pray that you would work deep in their hearts as you worked in the hearts of many of those in this room. And it's through your son's name we pray.